The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. From Reuters Breaking Views, I'm Anthony Curry. And I'm Jennifer Sabre. And you're listening to The Views Room. So it's time for our final edition of What's in Store for 2019. Our colleagues around the world are helping us pluck relevant themes from our annual predictions book entitled High Anxiety. Later in the show, we'll be handing over to folks in Hong Kong for a discussion about which Indian startups are poised to succeed overseas. We'll round off the show by quizzing two of our team how they chose just three indicators to assess the health of the global economy. And to begin, though, we pass the mic to London to chat about perhaps the most famous and increasingly infamous investment fund. We have uh, Liam Proud and George Hay joining me, Swaha Pashnaik, to discuss um, all things SoftBank and Vision Fund. Welcome. Liam, let me start with you. Um, Your prediction was that SoftBank, which has something like nearly 100 billion? Yeah, uh, 97 billion. Yeah, at its disposal. Um, Running into some problems this year, your predictions coming true even faster than you expected. (laughs) So do you want to just talk us through what you thought the problems were going to be and maybe then we could turn to what the problems that are emerging very early in the new year? So, I mean, the Vision Fund is this, as I said, it's about $97 billion of committed capital um, and it's managed by um, SoftBank and this is controlled by Masayoshi Son, who is Japan's richest man. And the people who have put up most of the money for it are the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund and um, Abu Dhabi's Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, which between them have put up about 60% of the capital that it has at its disposal. Um, Now, they've been going around investing in companies at kind of eye-poppingly large valuations, really. They bought into WeWork originally at a $20 billion valuation, when it, um, you know, it will make probably less than two billion of revenue this year, according to I think Moody's estimated that. Um, it's bought Arm at a, you know, it, I think it was about a forty percent premium to the market price a few years ago, and then flipped some of that into the fund. Now, that was fine when markets were rising and interest rates were low and tech valuations in public markets were quite high. It was easy to justify those kind of valuations, but now you're seeing, you know. The interest rates, rate cycle is potentially turning. We've seen the Fed raise rates, rates recently. Um, tech stocks as a whole have done really badly in the past six months. Um, now, he, Masson, has to get these valuation numbers signed off by accountants, you know, accountants, bean counters who are there, you know, using conventional uh, methodologies, discounted cash flows and all kinds of boring stuff like that. That's going to be hard next year if tech stocks keep declining in value for him to say, you know, WeWork's still worth, you know, whatever, 20 billion. And what do you think would you would your repast be to people who say this is a very long term? I mean, the Vision Fund looks very, very far into the future. What's your repast to these sort of short-term economic cycles yeah. and the rates and stuff like that? It's, isn't well, really what we should be looking at. Two things. One, fine, that could be true. You know, perhaps WeWork or Arm will be a you know, Apple or Amazon style company at some point. But in the meantime, first of all, as I just said, these these quarterly valuation numbers have to get signed off by someone. And if they effectively take a write down on that, that's going to look bad for his investors. So whether or not he's right in the long term, it creates some kind of tension, which I think we're going to come back to in a second with the Saudis. Um, also, if he's taking write downs on the value of investments, um, that means the level at which he might be able to sell these companies is declining. 
And that means that because of the weird structure of the fund, where about half of it is um, has been structured through preference shares, which have a coupon where you have payments to make. Um, if investments aren't rising in value, it gets harder to justify and potentially harder to meet those coupon payments, um, whether or not you're right over a, he talks about a 300-year vision. So it almost becomes irrelevant in the long term at some point. Let's turn to their investor, um, George. Um, well, the biggest one in this fund is Saudi. What do you yeah. think um, <clears throat> you know, the feelings are with this partnership? There were probably a few qualms on both sides yeah. uh, because of a couple of reasons. Could you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, I suppose if you go back to the beginning of October, um, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, he said in an interview that he was very keen to, he was happy with the current state of play with the current Vision Fund. And he was also saying that they'd, he seemed to be pretty explicit that they would um, put another $45 billion into the new Vision Fund. And so everything looked pretty kind of hunky-dory then. But um, then that, that was literally days before the whole Khashoggi um, murder affair kind of sprung up. And um, that's made everything, unsurprisingly, a lot more tricky because now, uh, you know, obviously the Vision Fund is... The, the end users of its money are these kind of, uh, a lot of them are qu- quite cool and funky um, and, you know, right on tech um, tech entities in Silicon Valley. And they're, they're not, to the extent that anyone is down with state, potentially state-sponsored murder, <laughs> they're, they're, they're particularly going to have a problem with that. So, um, you know, there's an issue about whether Saudi money is as attractive as it was. Um, but then there's also, I suppose also... From, so from the from from the SoftBank point of view, they may not be so keen to um, be so close as they have been. Uh, but from the Saudi point of view, the oil price is kind of um, spiraling all over the place. It's currently a lot lower than people where people were kind of assuming it would be, and so they have just in in a nutshell less to play around with. Um, ultimately, the whole thing, the, the whole um, firepower for the um, PIF, which is their sovereign wealth fund ultimately comes from their 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 oil wealth. So um, on both sides, you've got a kind of slight probable re- reluctance to be quite as close to each other. And you're seeing more caution from the Saudis as well, right? I mean, the story that, that we were writing about today, which was January the 8th, was this idea of them effectively vetoing further big investment in WeWork. Now that is, you know, they're worried. The, the the limited partners for Son are worried about valuations and whether or not they're sustainable, which is you know not particularly uh, fantastic if you're running a massive fund. Great. Well, thank you very much, Liam and George, for uh, explaining the, the thinking behind that prediction. Thanks. Thanks. I'm Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, and today I'm speaking with our associate editor Yuna Galani in Mumbai. Uh, we've been working on our predictions in Breaking Views Asia Bureaus too. And Yuna, you told me that 2019 might just be the year that India's tech startups go global. Um, so for starters, which unicorns do you think will be leading the charge out of India? Hi, Katrina. Yes, we are predicting that India's tech startups will be a huge success overseas. And there are three that are predominantly leading the charge and ramping up. Um, We've got Ola, the ride-hailing firm, which rivals Uber. It's valued at about $7 billion. It's already in the UK and Australia. And I think it, I I wouldn't be surprised if we see them launch in London very soon. 
Um, and then we've also got Zomato, which is a restaurant search and de- food delivery firm it's about present in about 24 countries already, uh, but it's still uh, still sort of like deepening its uh, business model overseas. And then we have Oyo, which is a hotel rooms aggregator, and that's already in China and Malaysia. So these are all very ambitious companies that are already leaders at home and have big, rich international backers, including SoftBank, its Vision Fund, and also Ant Financial, which is the affiliate of Alibaba. And um, why is 2019 going to be their big year? Why haven't they made this this kind of uh, big effort to ramp up before now? Well, there's lots of reasons to think that these companies are well prepared to thrive overseas. They are already dominant in India um, over global rivals, like I said, Uber. And uh, that, they, that means they have mastered uh, one of the most challenging and diverse markets of all the large global markets. Uh, Oyo uh, is, is rapid rollout, mean it's expected to be the world's largest hotel brand by 2020, you know, bigger than the likes of Marriott, Starwood, Accor Hotels. It's, it's quite something. Um, and they've established this success despite contending with multiple languages and patchy telecom coverage and still limited levels of financial inclusion in India, which means that Many users are still paying for e-services in cash. And all that means that their technology is unusually robust uh, for the job in hand. But to really answer your question, why now? Well, apart from their own confidence and their abilities to succeed because of their success at home, it's also a matter of limited internet penetration in India, which is actually applying a natural break on how much they can grow at home. You know, about one third of India's 1.3 billion population have a smartphone. Now, while that's more than the US, it it also means that a company like Ola, which has about 150 million riders already, already has a large chunk of the market that it it can reasonably service with such limited internet penetration. So they're really just beginning to max out the limits of their own market at the moment. Okay, so it's sort of like a a spillover from from their home market. Uh, But some of those companies that, that you've mentioned, uh, they have competitors who are already doing something quite similar in overseas markets. So I'm thinking of um, Ola, for example. Obviously, they could be going head-to-head with Uber and China's Didi. So how is that going to work out? Are India's unicorns going to end up having a face-off with their international rivals, or are they going to find a way to coexist? Okay, well, Katrina, you've got me there. Yes, um, the technology, Indian technology companies will have to face off with global rivals. Um, They're not the only people moving overseas. Uh, One of the reasons, the Indian ones, as we said, are moving overseas because of limited internet penetration and limited incomes. Um, But for, for much of the rest of Asia, it's the reverse. Companies are moving overseas now because they have almost maxed out their potential in their home market where everyone is already online. Um, But Indian companies, I still think, have a couple of advantages. One is the language. They are much more comfortable operating in English as they do so already. So that's a large help. And they have a huge Indian diaspora in markets, especially like Australia Mm. and in the US and in the UK. So, you know, that's going to help them, too. And predominantly at a time when the world is very suspicious of Chinese companies, that's going to make it easier for Indian ones to slip in. So, uh, Coupled with their scale at home, their robust technology, I think they're pretty well placed to face off their international rivals. Mm. And if this works out and they end up thriving overseas, is that going to change the way they do things at home in India? Well, that's a great question. And it comes down to the crux of this trend. 
Indian startups have realized that if they can be successful overseas where incomes are higher and the unit economics are better, i.e. people are richer, then they can use some of those profits to plump the bottom line in their home market in India, which is still a market with unrivaled long-term potential. Okay, well, thank you so much, Yuna, for joining us. The U.S. stock market is wobbling all over the place. President Donald Trump's trade war is starting to take effect, yet U.S. unemployment is at a low and wages are strong. How does one make sense of this? Luckily, we have Breaking Views Deputy Editor Richard Beals here with us in New York, and dialing in from London is graphics editor Vincent Flasser. Welcome. Hi. Hi. All right, Richard, let's start with you. You picked three benchmarks to look at. They they seem to be unusual, at least when I looked at it. Not (laughs) typical. um, To kind of basically paint a picture of the global markets. Why don't you take us through what you decided Yeah, so we're trying to pick, as you say, hopefully, at least in some of the cases, slightly unusual uh, benchmarks that kind of reflect what's happening in key areas that we felt might be relevant in in the year ahead. Uh, I think the first one is maybe the simplest to describe in in this respect. It's it's the difference in price between U.S. soybeans and Brazilian soybeans. Okay, and why soybeans? Well, because China imports soybeans, but other people trade soybeans, and this is a proxy for trade tensions. Now, why why is that? So, you know, when Donald Trump and China are at loggerheads, what happened in 2018 was the price of, relative to the price of U.S. soybeans, the price of Brazilian soybeans went up a lot. So you see this big gap opening up on a chart where the lines used to track each other quite closely. Um, they've now narrowed a bit. There are trade talks going on. There are there's some hope of that the, there's, there's room for some agreement. It's not all trade war right now. And, and those, those lines are getting closer again. So it, it's a slightly off-the-wall way of looking at trade. It's not like measuring trade or tariffs or the arguments or what's going on, but it's one indicator which kind of paints a, what seems to be about the right picture of, of how tense the trade situation is. Hmm. Okay. All right. That's interesting. So take us through um, the second uh, metric that you have, which seems to be a little more traditional, if you will. Yeah, this is more traditional. It's one a lot of people refer to. and Everybody likes to – it's a yield curve. So the difference between uh, the yield on a two-year treasury bond and a 10-year treasury bond. And if that goes negative, in other words, if, if a 10-year bond yields less than a two-year bond – uh, it's considered a signal of a recession, although how quickly the recession comes after that happens is a bit of a problem, which makes it a less useful indicator. But the chart is quite uh, dramatic. Every time it's dipped below zero, there has been a recession. The last five recessions, you can see that on the chart. And, and with how, we're sorry, Richard, within how long a period? Um, I know you said you know it doesn't. The question is how long, but you now what's the period of those last five recessions? So the last five recessions since about 1980. Yeah. Um, and the spread has been positive uh, for a long time since right after the financial crisis. It's been declining and it's right down near zero, which has provoked a lot of uh, writing about the, this particular indicator and, and so on. It's still above zero, but only just right now. And that's the, that's the only financial indicator or finance indicator you chose, right? So, um, you know, if I think back to what we were looking at during the financial crisis, it was things like, 
you know, the VIX and the, the TED spread, which I know now we think of the TED spread, we think has that got something to do with uh, with TED talks. But of course, it's all about about volatility and, and various yields. Um, you chose this one purely because it's the one everyone likes to think of as the best indicator. Well, it's simple is one reason. I mean, this one is not so unusual. A lot of people, it's a rule of thumb that a lot of people use. Um, but it's quite dramatic. It's a simple way. So rather than looking at unemployment and one kind of yield and a whole bunch of other stuff and trying to sort of synthesize all that into one idea, this is just a simple indicator, which probably makes it flawed, in fact. But it's a nice, simple way uh, of looking at this option. Also, we're kind of due a recession. So it's something people are looking at. If At least if you believe the gaps between recessions in past periods, we're kind of in a long period without one right yeah. now. Um, so, Vincent, why don't you talk a little bit about corporate stocks? Because that was another benchmark that um, both of you decided to use. And to me, that seems to be like the, the market, at least here in the U.S., has been just absolutely insane. Companies have been doing quite well. What, Tell me about this benchmark and, and what do you think this can kind of, in terms of a crystal ball, what this means? Well, we, uh, we wanted to, um, to look at, um, at some uh, indicator that would, uh, that would give us a view on emerging markets and on, on developed markets. And um, so we, we decided to look at MSCI emerging versus MSCI world, which is the developed version. And um, we basically have a, a, a simple way to, um, to assess um, the proportion of constituents in each of these indices and, and, and to assess how, uh, how many of them are in sort of bear territory. Um, obviously, like emerging markets got into a bear territory a bit earlier in the year. And uh, hmm. whereas the developed market has sort of held uh, relatively well until until September or until at least like the end of the year, and what we wanted to show is that they they would or they could be a sort of like catch up from like the developed uh, market, and uh, so what we're doing is literally measuring in percentage term how many constituents out of the thousands plus constituents in each of these indices. And uh, to see how many of them are, so we use this sort of rule of thumb for bear market, which is um, uh, if the current valuation is at a 20% discount or more to the 52-week high. Um, and, um, well, what we see, what the chart shows is um, uh, emerging markets sort of quickly reach the 50% mark, so 50% of the constituents by, by mid-year. Mid and uh, you can tell that the trend is rather clear as well for developed markets and we are getting and actually we crossed the 50% mark just at the end of the year and I think we're currently at, uh, at about 60% um, 60%. Um, so that's, that's the idea. The idea was to just be able to assess how deep into bear territory each of the sort of two main uh, equity markets were, were heading to. So I, I'm assuming that that both of you looked at a lot of different types of things, um, and I was wondering if there, are, if you could give examples of a few things that you decided. Well, this just doesn't work. It didn't graph properly, or it didn't show what we wanted to show. I'm going to put both of you on the spot here. Is mm -hmm. there something that was completely where you're like, oh, never mind. We're just not going to. We're not going to put. Yeah, this you, in the you must have been looking. For, you must have looked one thought. That's just too complicated. I love the idea of it, but we're going, we're trying too too hard here to prove a point. Well, you know, first first of all, we were trying to pick, trying to limit the numbers. So we picked just three. We were trying to pick three risks that were kind of 
out there and trade was one, just the economy was another and just corporate performance seemed like a good solid third one. So we're looking for something. Of course, you can just have an index level, but you know, everybody kind of follows those. Mm. It's not that exciting. Um, we looked, uh, you know, Vincent may, may have the, the details better on this one. We looked at a thing called a Citigroup Economic Surprise Index, which is itself a kind of amalgam of all kinds of things. But it was just kind of impossible to explain. Right? It is, so, yes. And, and I think what we were looking for and it was something that would not tell you directly what the answer is, right? We wanted to have something that was a little bit more indirect and um, something a little bit more, let's say, interesting. Um, in the case of that index, it's, you know, you are up or down and you are basically, uh, so it, it would give you like directly like the answer you're looking for um, without, without any opportunity to interpret or to try to find a trend or, um, and, and like you said, it, it's extremely volatile. It's just ups and downs, hard to map it against, uh, well, other, other events or, or, or landmarks. Um, Whereas with, mm. with, for instance, like the yield curve, we are able just to go back 40 years and we are able to, you know, compare that to recessions and so on. So it, it was, it, there was a lot of, of fine tuning and trying to, uh, casting to find like, like the better, the better indicators. And um, um, I think it worked out pretty well at the end. Like the soybean one is something you would ne not necessarily, unless you are into that sort of field, you would not really be uh, looking at. But it's actually a very good way, and it's extremely sensitive to to any news on trade. Um, the the chart, obviously, since we've we've published, has gone uh, on updating and has gone up and down, exactly sort of like um, reacting to like the news and like the ninety day truth that was announced at uh, at the G twenty, and um, so in in a sense, it's validated like our our choice. Yeah, I mean that that one stands out as the the most striking to me. And for that respect, I mean that just the, the the virtual mirror image you suddenly get in two thousand and eighteen between Brazilian and U.S. soybeans is is really quite stark and 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 and, and speaks to the point. But also, I suppose this this economic surprises index you were mentioning from Citigroup, it's that's also far more subjective. It's a bit like something you, know, you get a trader to do what they call a wall of worry. It's like you can you can put in what you want, but right. but this right. is this is just hard numbers. Yeah, and, it, in a and it's, way, and but it's to, and it's obviously anybody trading that index is is anybody trading soybeans is looking at that market and saying, okay, Brazil is producing soybeans, the U.S. is producing soybeans, other people are buying soybeans. Any trade barrier affects their decisions about where to buy soybeans from. So it is hypersensitive, and and yeah. aside from obviously climate, uh, weather, and harvests, and all those other kind of things that affect commodities. Uh, the ease or the expense of trading from given or importing from given producing countries is it's very sensitive to that. We we wanted to build something that we could all go back to during the year and see uh, see how it uh, how things uh, uh, turn out. Yeah, what's what's fun about that is you kind of get to mark our mark our performance in a way because because the uh, we we have the images of the charts as they were when we wrote the words that go with them but then once yeah. you click through you get an updated version so if if uh, if the real situation has changed you can get to see that yeah that's great so in a couple months we will check back in and we may have both of you back on the program to, to explain to why explain. these were bad choices exactly <laughs> now no, to explain what's going on in the mar in the marketplace okay so thanks to you both vincent thanks for dialing in london and richard thanks for coming in the studio pleasure thank you that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Swaha Patanaik, 
Liam Proud, George Hay, Katrina Hamlin, Una Galani, Richard Beals, and Vincent Flusser. And hats off to our producers, Ross Shoulder, Andrew D'Antonio, and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, where you can download our 2019 predictions book, High Anxiety, and you can also find those nifty charts that Richard and Vincent were talking about. Don't forget to tune us in next week for another edition.